At the beginning of November, the George Washington Presidential Library at Mount Vernon celebrated its 10th anniversary with a symposium titled The Great Experiment, Democracy from the Founding to the Future. Guests on this initial panel included historians H.W. Brands of the University of Texas, Doug Brinkley of Rice, Joanne Freeman of Yale, and Edna Green Medford of Howard University. One point of the discussion was the Mount Vernon poll that found that two-thirds of Americans are pessimistic about the country's direction and dissatisfied with the political climate. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. Let me start by asking Doug Brinkley, can you tell us, and we'll go right down the row, okay. when you first remember being told about democracy? Well, my mom was a high school English teacher. My dad taught social studies, and we used to visit historic sites all over the country. So I came to Mount Vernon as a boy, came to, you know, toured here, and my parents um, taught me about it, what it meant. Uh, my uh, my mom's brother was killed in World War II at Iwo Jima. He was a Marine, and my, I think my mom's view of democracy came out of that World War II experience, so that we were fighting for democracy in World War II, and we were fighting against fascism. We were fighting against, um, you know, the the Japanese um, uh, imperialist, and and and. They, I think that was really the, the traveling and then going to libraries and just getting books on all of the uh, early founders, you know, reading about um, Alexander Hamilton and reading about uh, the great, you know, Jefferson Washington and many others. And that's continued throughout my life. So it comes from like studying books, the founders, but also parents that kind of home educated me about that. Bill Brands. I don't recall the first time I was told about democracy, but my first experience of democracy was when I was six, seven years old, and there was a time for the 1960 presidential election. I was attending a Catholic school, and so when I was at school, the nuns, who were most of our teachers, would sometimes openly, sometimes implicitly, tell us to go home and pray for the election of John Kennedy. And somehow I spilled this to my father, who was a stout Republican, who told me he'd be damned if he was going to vote for John Kennedy. And I realized that democracy is a a competitive activity. (laughs) Joanne Freeman. Um, Personally, I think, again, I, I can't say it was my democracy moment, but what I do recall is that the bicentennial made me think about the United States and um, American politics and what it meant in a way that I hadn't. And like you, Doug, it got me reading uh, about the founders and the founding. So it kind of shifted my thinking about the origins and the essence of the United States. But on a more personal level, my grandparents, my father's parents, my grandfather was a dire, diehard Republican, and my grandmother was a dire, diehard Democrat. And watching them engage or not engage with each other about politics taught me a lot about the fact that democracy means people with different views can debate in a variety of different ways. 
Edna Medford. Mm -hmm. I, I think my experience is probably a little bit different. Uh, I grew up in a place where the African-American population was 82%. And we had no real ability to control the government in our little county or anything else for that matter. But my father, believe it or not, was a Republican until the Kennedy uh, campaign. And then he changed at that point. And I remember him saying that he was making the change because he felt that Kennedy would be more likely to do something for black people in terms of ensuring equal rights for black people. I really began to study democracy, though, in high school uh, with the teacher whose name I can still remember, although it's been <clears throat> many, many years ago. <laughs> uh, but her name was Wilnette Carter, and she was my government teacher. And uh, I can still remember those classes. All four of our guests are professors, <clears throat> and they all write books. So let's find out what they're currently writing about. Start with Edna. Okay. I'm co-authoring a book on a man named William Trail, who was born in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, he was born enslaved in 1784, so at the end of the Revolution. Uh, he was taken as a child to Spartanburg, South Carolina. And when he was 30 years old and at the near the end of the War of 1812, he freed himself by running away to southeastern Indiana, where he established a little uh, free black settlement, had seven sons, four of the sons served the Union Army uh, in the Civil War. Uh, one of them died uh, in a prisoner of war camp uh, in Danville, Virginia, after the Battle of the Crater. He survived that and died in the camp. Another one died of scurvy in Corpus Christi. Third one came back home and committed suicide a couple of years later. The fourth son, though, became uh, a rather prominent local politician. And so he had gone to war to ensure he had been born free because his father had you know, escaped slavery. But uh, he had gone into war to ensure that he had certain rights that other Americans had. And he fought for those rights. And actually, he was successful in the sense that he was able to come back home and uh, become a successful farmer and a small politician in his community. Professor Freeman. Uh, I'm working on a book with the working title, Hunting for Hamilton. Um, and I have to say, I've been interested in Hamilton and studying Hamilton since before he became trendy um, for about 45 years, actually. Um, and I hunted for Hamilton all over the world, Scotland and the Caribbean and any number of other places. But what interests me about this now is the fact that over that time, Americans have thought about their history and about the founding in so many different ways. I want to track over time how Americans have been thinking about the founding period and how that has changed. Obviously, it'll sort of end with the Hamilton moment. But during my travels, I did not know that in the future I would be a historian, but I kept spiral notebooks of every conversation I had. I have bus tickets. I have this amazing chronicle of my hunt. And so in one way or another, I'll be combining, uh, looking at how Americans have grappled with their history in different ways over time and the founding, but also incorporating the simple fact of hunting for history and what that means and how people around the world uh, in other countries have been engaged with American history as well. Bill Brands. 
I was delighted to receive an invitation to participate in this symposium because my new book, which is officially being released next Tuesday, but is on sale here today, (laughs) is called Founding Partisans. And it examines the emergence of party politics in the United States in the 1780s and 1790s. And it stars Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. And it examines this question of how is it that, well, it's not democracy yet, it's a republic. And how do political parties emerge in this country, despite the best hopes and expectations of the founders that this country would be spared partisan politics. They weren't, we, weren't, we weren't spared. We've had parties and partisanship from the very beginning. Doug Brinkley. I've been working on two different projects, one with my presidential historian's hat. I'm look, tracing the, um, the, what is executive power, and particularly the birth of the executive order. George Washington's Neutrality Acts, the first chapter, uh, because it's not really in the Constitution how much power a president has. Washington did the Neutrality Act and very little executive orders going on until Lincoln did what some people call executive order number one, um, the Emancipation Proclamation. And after that, you start seeing this uptick in uh, executive orders going on. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's the progenitor of signing them left and right, and he looks like a piker when you get to the time FDR does, you know, 3,600 of them. Um, And when you track all of these executive power, it runs right up to Joe Biden doing that for AI security and uh, You know, he just did a big executive order. How does that circumvent Congress? Uh, Where does that tradition come? What does it mean? I'm trying to give it an honest and fair look. A lot of it depends on where you're standing. Like FDR did um, things like the Manhattan Project, executive order. He also did the Japanese internment, which was criticized for executive order. Um, You know, John F. Kennedy did the Peace Corps with an executive order. on and on it goes. So I'm kind of looking at the winning executive orders and the losers. Second, I'm having great fun. I'm writing the history of Route 66 from Chicago to Santa Monica. And I've uh, already written my Illinois and I'm in Missouri um, right now. And then I'm taking my whole family down the old route. Oh, it was founded in 1926 and it'll be celebrating its centennial Route 66 exactly when America turns, you know, 250, and I'm on the board of the National Archives Foundation and the Library of Congress, and everybody was kind of looking at the founders and very eastern, east coast America 250, so I thought I'd pick up the west and, uh, and you know, going to Chicago, so in a place like St. Louis, uh, we were talking about last night, I mean, you can do, I'm writing about Dred Scott decision, where he's buried, I'm writing about Ulysses S. Grant there, about Scott Joplin, about, uh, you know, Chuck Berry, about the birth of neon, about how the Corvette used to be manufactured in St. Louis, uh, uh, about early transportation with the river, about the Eads Bridge, and on and on it goes down the road, and it ends 66 right into the Santa Monica Pier in California. And I must say, it was two white people on Route 66 had it different than people of color. 
the Green Book was in play for a lot of Route 66, not all, but a lot, and I'm visiting some of those places. And the National Park Service is starting to save old gas stations. We're saving old uh, um, uh, Chinese restaurants along 66, uh, old kitschy roadside stops. They're all meeting criterion to be on the uh, National Historical Register. On any given day, you can hear any given elected official say the United States is the greatest country in the history of the world. Joanne Freeman, what's your reaction when you hear that? Wow, that's a question, Brian. <laughs> um, I, I would say yes with an asterisk. Um, I love this country. I've devoted my life pretty much to studying this country. I think the potential of this country is remarkable and off the charts. Um, I think that to some degree, some Americans have taken that for granted. Um, haven't thought about the fact that some of the things that we value, and given the topic of this symposium, one of those things really fundamentally is democracy. Um, people haven't thought about it. They've kind of assumed that these things go of themselves. They haven't thought about the fact that they need to be defended and protected. Um, and so I think to keep marching forward in a way that will preserve and protect what we value, these fundamental values about America, democracy being a big one, we're at a moment where we are being called upon uh, to work towards some of those things, to, to really defend, define, understand, and embrace really what democracy is, what it means, and what we want it to be. Um, I talk very often about topics related to this in a public venue, and um, I will often say, you know, we're at this moment of, of extreme contingency, and as a historian, we think about and talk about contingency all the time. This is a hyper-contingency moment, I think. And to me, what that means is, on the one hand, it's possible that things will get very dark and dire, and we need to be aware of that. On the other hand... It's a moment when change is possible in a positive way. If we are alert and aware to what's going on and really work towards improving things and making things better. So I, I sort of hate when people only talk about the fact that we're sort of might be sinking. I think it's important to embrace the fact that we can make positive change. And in that sense, in the spirit of your question, Brian, um, extend what makes this a great country and better this country to be even better than it's been before in some ways in which it's failed. Dr. Medford, is this the greatest country in the history of the world? It has the potential for being the greatest in the history. Uh, I think that we need to remember that democracy is an unfolding story. And so at any given moment, we are moving forward and trying to get to that point of perfection, although, as Lincoln said, we will never reach perfection. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue in that direction. And in any other moment, we're moving backwards. I think at the moment, we're moving backwards. I think it's a very dangerous position that we're in at the moment. But that doesn't mean that we can't survive it, because we have survived in the past. Uh, but we're all going to have to be uh, willing to roll up our sleeves and do the hard work. Uh, we cannot bury our heads in the sand and say America is the greatest country ever 
and not recognize the issues that still exist in this country. I think it's our obligation as American citizens to ensure that we're moving forward. And if we're not doing that, then we only have ourselves to blame if we lose the democracy that we claim we love. Dr. Brinkley. Well, ditto all of that. I, I think that Brian wants somebody to say, we're number one. <laughs> and I, I feel that our country is the most extraordinary uh, that the world's ever seen. Uh, I say that out of a lot of love. Uh, and I say that with the sense of all of our, our failings and shortcomings. I still believe that we're the great progenitor of, uh, of ideas and innovation, um, of civilization. Um, and yes, I'm deeply sad about what's going on now, seeing American infighting, seeing our institutions being frayed, seeing politicians trying to uh, defund um, generals and not appoint ambassadors. <laughs> I mean, it's really troubling. And then we have a world that's torn at the seams right now. But I, I believe we'll pull through what we're dealing with right now because there's a spirit in America and the American people that I find to be extraordinary. And it's only being more reconfirmed as I get away from the media noise and get on Route 66 and visit American towns and talk to people. There's more, uh, there's more um, homogeneity. There's more, there's more closeness in our country than maybe we're feeling when we're looking at polls and we're looking on, on TV. Um, but I also think it wasn't that the founders created the great America. I think we have foundational documents and they keep growing from the Bill of Rights, Constitution, Declaration of Independence. You know, you move on to things that go, you know, with Lincoln's, I think, are foundational documents, the Gettysburg Address, Emancipation Proclamation, both of his inaugurals. And um, certainly um, Dr. King's um, um, speeches, not just the Eye of the Dream speech, but many are really foundational. Lyndon Johnson with Civil Rights Acts in the 60s, the growth of our democracy, the ability that we were able by 1920 to have women vote with suffrage took that long, but that didn't mean if you were a person of color you could, could vote. And so it has to wait a long time later to have that happen. But I do feel we're, 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 we're leading the world still. Uh, I don't I don't want to move to China or Russia, and I don't know who the other great power of our time is. Uh, but, it, you know, so you've got to back the United States, our NATO allies. Uh, I have great respect for Canada, Australia, uh, Great Britain, Israel, countries that are our friends. And uh, because I think collectively now we are really representing the free world against a, a world that's, that's, you know, um, in the balance. Professor Brands. My father was very proud of his children, but he was also very sparing of his praise to us. He didn't want us to get big hits. He wanted us to keep striving. I'm proud of this country, but I don't think it does any of us really any good to say this is the greatest country in history. Sure, for a moment it might make us feel good, but one of the things I caution my students, people who are going to write dissertations and theses, be careful about making these comparative statements, because to say that somebody is the greatest of this, you have to compare that person with every other person who ever lived, every other country. And it's a waste of time. I certainly endorse everything that's been said about this country being a work in progress. And that is the constant challenge, but it's also the opportunity and the glory of this experiment in self-government. It's up to us 
with each generation to push the ball a little bit forward, to move things a little bit forward. I have a standard lecture that I give to my students. I teach an introductory course in American history that starts in the fall before colonization and it ends up to the present. And I say at various times through the course of the year, but especially at the end, I tell my students, these are all 18, 19, 20-year-old students, and I say, if you don't like the world that exists now, today, it's not your fault. It's my fault. It's the fault of my generation. Blame me and my generation. And I tell them, this is sort of sending them off into the world. I said, believe it or not, one day you will be as old, most of you, statistically nearly all of you, will be as old as I am. And when that day comes, if you don't like the world then, blame yourselves. Because every generation has a chance to improve on the world that is bequeathed. We're handing you what we've been able to do with the world that we inherited. And we've tried to make things better. We've succeeded in some areas. We haven't in other areas. But now it's up to you. And this is, this is the strength of the United States. It's also the reason that I continue to be hopeful. I mean, partly because I teach young people. I teach students, these 18, 19-year-olds who are just stepping in to the adult world. And they're just stepping in, as I remind them, they're stepping onto the stage of American democracy. So the country will be what they make of it. I've been observing American history and American politics long enough, far long enough to be kind of jaded about the way things are. I just love it. The, the best day of my year is the first day of the fall semester when students come in and they're wide-eyed, they're somewhat scared because for the first time they're on their own, but they're full of hope, they're full of the sense of opportunity. And this is what gives me hope for the United States. I'd like to encourage those of you who have questions to use the QR code on the back of your program and we'll start using them as uh, soon as we get them. What grade, start with, and uh, what grade would you give the American democracy? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you got that one first. Yeah. You know, it, it depends upon the time. Uh, I don't think you can just give one grade. You have to look historically at what has happened. Just try it. Okay. Okay. A, a B minus at the moment. I, can, I think we can do so much better than we're doing. So, and a B minus was passing in my class <laughs> when I was teaching, but just barely. You know, I, I expected so much more. What's the biggest thing that's wrong with American democracy? I think it's not enough inclusiveness. I think that although we've made strides from the time um, of the founding of the nation through the Jacksonian period, through the Civil War and Reconstruction and down into the Civil Rights Movement, I think we're moving backwards. And I am very concerned that marginalized people are going to become even more marginalized unless we do something about it. So maybe B minus C plus, but we could easily get an A plus if we just put the effort in. And if we really looked at government as something that we do that benefits all people, not just a segment of the population. Dr. Brands, grade. When students write papers for me, I have them turn in a first draft. 
and I tell them that I'm going to grade this first draft rigorously. Most of my students are straight-A students in high school, and I get them, this is their first semester of college, and I tell them, be prepared for a shock, because you're almost certainly not going to get an A on this first draft. Now, I'm going to tell you in the marginal comments on your draft what you did well and how it can be improved. So I'm treating American democracy in the spirit of what I said earlier as a work in progress. This is a rough draft. I'm going to grade the first draft. And the grade on the first draft is going to be a B. And it's, I see good stuff here. I see this devotion to the idea that people can govern themselves. But there's room for improvement. And the room for improvement includes making sure that everybody gets a chance to participate in this. Make sure that we keep in mind that this is an experiment. And I'd like to pick up on something that Joanne said, that, you know, it is, it's tempting to think when you've been involved in this democracy. We've had this country for almost 250 years. And it's tempting to think that it was inevitable that things were going to turn out the way they did. But there was nothing inevitable about it all. There was a great deal of contingency. To get to where we are, people had to do this, and they had to do this, and they had to do this, and they had to do this. And it's also tempting to think that because we've had these institutions that last a long time, they will last forever. Well, that's not guaranteed at all either. So I would say to Americans on this draft that I'm grading, make sure you take care of these institutions, these values, you've been bequeathed, because they don't take care of themselves. Dr. Freeman, your grade. Um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with C+, um, for a couple reasons. Number one, I actually fundamentally think a lot of Americans don't know what democracy is on a fundamental level. When I say things in public, or I will admit, I use social media, on social media, and say uh, Americans, and I actually did tweet out into the world, I don't think Americans realize what they lose when they lose democracy. It was very apparent, and I would say three million people apparently saw that message. And it was clear that some people understood what I was saying. It was also clear to me that some people really just didn't know what democracy was, didn't know what it meant, and didn't know, indeed, what you lose when you lose democracy, either taking it for granted, just sort of generally knowing democracy is good, or generally saying, well, we don't have it anyway, let's try something different, right? All, much of that is alarming. So I would say a C plus, but I would say um, being aware of the fact that I say a C plus, being aware kind of along the lines of what you were just saying, that we and actually what everyone here has been saying, that we need to improve is part of the heart of um, what it means to be in a democratic mode of government. It, it makes me think, there's a wonderful um, series of letters that John Adams wrote in his old age. Um, and like many of the founders, people, younger people would write to him and say, tell us about the founding. Tell us, tell us about the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Tell us what you think. And already, clearly, in the letters, they were assuming A+. They were assuming, you guys are amazing, you made miracles, and just tell us about the miracles. And John Adams would say over and over and over again, oh, no, 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 we didn't 
have any miracles. We didn't know what we were doing. We were trying really hard. There's a wonderful letter. If you go to um, Founders Online website through the National Archives, if you look it up, you'll find it. Um, he says to one person, we made mistakes. 1775, 1776, 1777. 1778, and he just like marches over time. We made a lot of mistakes, right? You can't actually check out and assume that it's all good. He says, I sat and I watched people sign the Declaration of Independence, and I could see their faces, and I could see that some of them were not happy to be signing that document. So his message was, it isn't perfect. It's never been perfect. We knew that even whatever we were doing and in whatever way they understood a democratic mode of governments, which is not how we do, they understood that whatever they were doing, as many of us up here have said, was a work in progress. And Adams, particularly, who liked to sort of poke pins in any sort of pompous claims or assumptions, he said essentially over and over and over again, don't take it for granted, don't put it on a pedestal. We set things in motion. And now you're going to have to keep it going. Doug Brinkley. You know, just building off of that, I, you know, one of the great healing, talking about foundational documents, the Adams-Jefferson correspondence when they get published, because here were two adversarial uh, minds uh, at the, arguing all the time. They had to run against each other in the 1800 election, which was very brutal to have a political party system like that. And how moving in their senior years, they started befriending each other with an incredible correspondence that with you read it, it sends a symbol of our democracy as our best. How do you have a partisan warfare, but then heal? Dr. Brinkley, grade, please. Um, well, in America, <laughs> through, through, through history or now, like today? Like what's Just overall? how would you grade our democracy today? Our democracy today. Today. Mm. Um, I'd have to give it a lower grade than I like. I would say B minus. Uh, I think we're we're um, sniping at each other in a way that we we've got to stop. They're, we're not working in a in a tandem. And I've worried since the advent of of Trump that he has uh, worked to help. To, he's a divide and conquer kind of person, and I like people that try to unite our country. But listen to this just for a second. We have a, a state of California that has 39 million people. They have two votes in the Senate. We have a state of Wyoming and many others. Wyoming has 600 and some thousand, two votes in the Senate. The only federal official in this country that has to be elected by the public is a member of the House of Representatives. The president, the vice president, and the Senate can all be appointed or voted on by another institution. How can you call that a democracy? Me? Or Any of you. Yeah, jump in. I'll be brief. I'll just say that. <clears throat> you know, it, it, look, everybody would love. Um, I, I, I believe we have to stick with the electoral college system right now. I only, but I'd love to see us not. But at the time being, there's no way you're going to be able to change things with the way the Congress and the Senate is, number one. I'm more concerned about statehood issues for D.C. and for um, Puerto Rico, where people are being disfranchised than that. If you only did one person, one vote, and I'm running for president, I will offer Los Angeles and New York everything under the sun. I would pour my campaign into population centers and offer the infrastructure there. I think that the thought of making sure that small and particularly agricultural states have representation, uh, 
holds up. I mean, if you look at 2000, we couldn't even do a, a recount in one state of Florida. Now we're going to start doing a recount, you know, of the popular vote when it gets close. It's our, if our technology can catch up, if we can do ways to make sure we streamline voting down the line, I'd love to see it. But I don't think it's realistic. And I know a lot of young people feel that we're not a democracy because of our electoral college system. I sympathize with them, but I, I do not think we can get rid of the electoral college system. I have a, a more sort of basic way in which I think of democracy and how we ought to be able to call ourselves a democracy. And indeed, if you think about what democracy is, voting rights, free and fair elections is a big part of it. I think citizens being aware of the rights that they have as citizens is a big part of it. But I think a fundamental part of it is accountability and the fact that we have the power to give power, put people in office, give them power, and that they are responsible to us for how they use that power. They are accountable to us. And I think so often, particularly nowadays, in so many ways, partly among the political crowd, partly in a, in a broader sense, this idea that people are accountable for what they do in a broad sense to the nation, to us. That's one of the big fundamentals of, of democracy, accountability. A government that is accountable in that way has a democratic spirit. And I think right now that's something that is being questioned or at least tested. Uh, and I think it's something we should all think about because I think it's easy to not think about that. We are the power in a democracy. Yeah, but what happens when the people who are voting don't make their elective officials accountable? Well, it you know, Because they either are susceptible to the lies that are just so pervasive out there, or they don't know enough about how government works. So how do we change that? I agree with you. We are responsible for making these people accountable. But half of us, perhaps that's an exaggeration, a but a significant <laughs> number of us don't even understand. No, I think that, I, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, going back to an earlier period, in part, there's a reason why in the founding era, education was front and foremost, right? Because people need to be educated about what, how things are supposed to run, what threats are. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of, and we heard about actually last night, um, about civics classes and the various ways in which students in school need to be taught these kinds of things. So I think that that is a, a big part of it, is education. Bill Brands, $10 billion is going to be spent on the 2024 election. <clears throat> There's an unlimited amount of money that an individual can give. How can you have a democracy when that kind of money is in, into the system? How can it be a fair democracy? I'm going to dodge the question slightly, but I'm going to get to the point. And... I think, we're, I think that we can lead ourselves astray asking, is America a democracy? Is it a perfectly functioning democracy? Because this guy right behind me, he didn't believe in democracy. He thought that what he wanted was a government that worked. Now, how government worked in George Washington's day was different than how it's supposed to work today. But... If we ask ourselves, can you have a democracy if you have an electoral college? Well, sort of no, but that's what we got. And we're probably stuck with it, so let's make the best of it. So the question is, does our government work? 
Does it work for everybody as much as it can? And whether, you know, whether it measures up to somebody's standard of democracy, I think is sort of beside the point. And so you ask the question, how does money play into this? And how can it be a democracy? Or how, how can it work for everybody? I'll, I'll reframe it. How can it work for the Americans generally if there's so much money flowing into politics? Well, I, I will say this, that the people with the most money don't always win the elections. I will say that it's more important to me than where the money is spent is do people have access to the polls? Do people, education is an important part of this. Do we educate our children, our students, to what the responsibility of citizens are? I haven't seen that the people with the money always win. I, I think that's not always the case. And when they, I think it's, it gets a little bit more problematic when you talk about how laws are written in Congress and where the, the lobbyists place their influence. But I don't see how we can get rid of it. And so let's deal with that situation and just try to get people to vote. This is one of the things I tell my students, and this is certainly a cliche, for very many of them, when they come in in, I can guarantee this, next fall, it being a presidential election year, there will be a lot of students in my class, most of the students in my classes will never have voted in a presidential election. And I will start talking to them in late August, leading up toward the November election. And one of the things I will tell them, many people have said this before, but this is your chance to play your part. I live in Texas, and as far as anybody can tell, Texas is going to be a strongly Republican state in 2024, just as it has been for the last 20 years. And so I will tell them that your vote counts, knowing, actually, that it really doesn't. But, but... What I do tell them is that this, is your, this gives you a right to complain if you don't like the way things turn out. So if you don't vote, shut up. But if you do vote, then you, you've demonstrated that you have sufficient interest to do the basic thing that citizens can do. So the more we can get people to vote and to pay attention to how they're voting, this, I think, is the most important thing we can do. Dr. Brinkley, <clears throat> if you get online, go to the Google and look for surveys about democracies in the world, which I'm sure you've done. The one I have in my hand is University of Würzburg. Another one that I have is democracymatrix.com. In democracymatrix.com, the United States is judged as being 36th in the quality of democracy. In this one, the University of Würzburg, the United States is it's also <clears throat> down around 26th. Why does the world not see us the way we see ourselves? Um, well, you, you can give Sweden a high ranking on something like that, probably. Okay. It's number four. Okay, let's just pick on Sweden. Denmark, um, Norway, Finland, Sweden, go. Germany. That's what I was getting at. That zone uh, would be naturally top. Uh, they, they shut down immigration. They wouldn't allow people to come in like they did. I live in Houston, Texas. It is Ellis Island down there. People from all over the world are in the United States. And people are, are um, you know, our immigration history, uh, which is controversial, has really made us into, I think, a remarkable place. We also have a very high population. Um, we're very diverse. It's a large country. If you're in Sweden, you can contain and, and do things. Um, so I, I put America as the most important democracy in the world. I think on some issues that we're, we're, we're not 
up to par with places, but I don't feel like the, the, or the United States can be or should strive to be Sweden. Uh, I think we're a much more uh, multiracial, multicultural uh, place. And if I could, Brian, Bill's doing something today I, that's really important. He's, being, he's talking about teaching, and, and he's in, at the University of Texas, Austin, teaching. Imagine how great it would be to take his class. A, we've got to have teachers teaching in high school like that. Civics, geography, American history. You've got to teach. We, the, the deficit here is we're letting our kids have an iPhone and go running around reading stuff, and they're not learning the fundamentals of what our democracy is. They're not learning the stories of what we've done to keep our democracy held afloat. And, and hence, you can see why p- people are trolling around with all sorts of conspiracy theories and sites. And all. So um, whatever we do out of a democracy summit like this, let's get back to the young people and teach them about our country so they want to vote, so they understand what it means to participate and honor all of the people that fought for generations all the way up to Washington for our country. Would we even have a United States without George, George Washington? Probably not. Um, and and why, we have to explain that to people. You, I promise you, you go to high school now and ask people about George Washington and they'll, first president, oh yeah, uh, and you know, was a general maybe in the Revolutionary War, if you're lucky. Um, and we got to fix that. That is, the, in my view, it's the education, geography, civics deficit that's crippling us. Doug Bradburn and Julie Almasy <clears throat> have created an extensive survey of the American people. It's available to anybody listening or watching this by getting on the Mount Vernon site and talking about this conference. And the one that uh, I want to mention at this particular one, this session is... Two-thirds of Americans are pessimistic about the country's direction and dissatisfied with the political climate. A lot of you have seen things like this. 66% say we're on the wrong track, the right track, and there's 33% on the wrong track. Edna, when you hear that, where are you? Right track, wrong track? Wrong track. I, I think people who, the 66%, you know, they're, they're correct. Uh, we've got a Congress that does not work. Uh, we have uh, people in Congress who are attacking each other. That, that's not the first time it's happened in the country, but it's uh, rather disheartening that it's happening now when we have so many issues in the country that need to be resolved. And we have people that we have elected who have the ability to correct these problems, but they're not willing to do it because their loyalty is not to the nation. It's to party or to individual. And so, you know, when we get to that point, the country itself suffers. So it's not just one group of people. We all suffer as a consequence of that. Uh, so I don't see that changing anytime soon, unfortunately. Joanne, there's another part of this that we're going to talk about here. It's a little bit different. The first one was how many are pessimistic. And then there's another one <clears throat> with um, that uh, American democracy, and let's see if I can get the right thing here. Um, well, no. Julie messed up and gave me the wrong thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to questions from the audience because we have a lot of them. And uh, I'm going to probably mispronounce the name, but David Giacchetti. Uh, if the country's democracy does not rate 
an A, then who's to blame if the people are determiners of the course of the country? Who wants to start? Bill Brands? Sure, I'll start. And one of the things I say all the time is we get the elected officials we deserve because we voted on them. Um, and so if you want to fix the government, elect new officials. If we, we get the presidents we deserve, we get the members of Congress we deserve. I should add something here. I sense in the grading around here that there's been some great inflation that's set in, as though it has to be an A or else it's not satisfactory. I explain to my students, I'm kind of old school on this, A denotes excellent, almost cannot be improved. B is very good. C is satisfactory. So um, I'm going to leave out that sort of the grading thing. Um, but I would just say, you know, people are pessimistic about the country's direction. If I'm, I'm reading the monitor here, and I don't, if that's the wording of the question, I think that's significant because I wonder if people, when they hear a question like that, are they thinking, is our government working or not, or is the country working or not? And I think that for a whole lot of people, what the government does is not the first thing they think about when they think about this country. All of the people who are trying to get into the United States, all the people who have immigrated to the United States from other countries, very few of them came for the government. They came because they wanted economic opportunity. They wanted more freedom than they had before. They didn't say, well, so how are the two parties doing in Washington? And is there a Speaker of the House or not? And so I think the United States, you asked a question, is the United States the greatest country on earth? I would say that the United States might very well, I would say the United States is the biggest story in world history in the last quarter millennium. Because from its beginning in 1776, it was a small, inconsequential, very tenuous country to being this country that has consistently attracted more people from more parts of the world than anywhere else. I'm willing to accept the judgment of people who think, yeah, in, at least in the realm of their alternatives, it is the greatest place, it's the place they want to be. Sometimes it's despite the government of the United States. But let's think of the country more broadly than simply what happens in Washington. Joanne Freeman, a question from Clark Welsh. What really distinguishes the American experiment from every form of government that came before? Well, actually, part of the answer is in the question. And that is when the nation was launched, it was defined as an experiment, that word was used. And it was understood that it would not necessarily work. It was understood, and actually it's, I, I have written a lot about the 1790s. Part of what fascinates me about the 1790s is the sense that everyone had that one stupid decision on a national level and the whole experiment would tank. Um, so I think the fact that it was understood that unlike at that time, at least the rest of the world, it was a world of monarchies, that the United States was launching an experiment that may or may not function. And I think that idea, and it gets back to some of what we've been saying in a variety of different ways up here, um, that contingency is built in to the process. We don't think about it, and this relates in a sense to some of what you were just saying, Doug. I think um, people forget that it has been and continues to be in some ways an experiment. They forget 
that, and they should now be remembering the fact that it could fail, it could collapse. I think that's an extraordinary way to think of a country that, that in a sense, it was launched as and remains in some ways an experimental mode of conducting itself because of the democratic roots that are there for, to be built on, to be improved upon. Um, I, I think we should think of it as an experiment, and I think that that should um, give us a sense of responsibility for making sure that that experiment continues and improves on an ongoing basis. Edna Medford from Porter Bowman. If you could wave a magic wand, what is the first change you would make to the political system as it operates today? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> mm. Maybe uh, just get rid of all the political figures and start over. <laughs> because I think it's such a mess uh, at the moment. Uh, but then the problem would be, who do we replace those people with? And I don't know that anyone who replaces them will be any better than what we have at the moment. I think we, as the people who are supposed to be making the decisions, ultimately have to change our way of thinking. Uh, and until that happens, we're going to have mediocre politicians running our lives, uh, just doing whatever is in their best interest, not what's in the best interest of the country. We are going to have to stand up collectively and say, you can't do this. This is not what we want. Because what we have in Congress at the moment is politicians who've decided that they want things a certain way in the country uh, and the people be damned. Doesn't matter what the majority wants they're just going to go full steam ahead anyway because they have some idea that's based on their sense of morality of what should be happening. And I think until we determine that those people have to go and that we are more inclusive in our attitudes, I don't think anything's going to change. Thank you for setting me up for a um, quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. Came here when he was 25 years old, back in 1831, <clears throat> and out of democracy in America. Here's the quote, Doug Brinkley, I'd like to have you deal with, and the rest of it, if you'd like. I do not know if the people of the United States would vote for superior men if they ran for office, but there can be no doubt that such men do not run. <laughs> um, we've been very blessed in American history at key moments to have had extraordinary leaders. Uh, Washington and our, the outset of our country, Lincoln in the Civil War, FDR in World War II um, are the, always the top three. Theodore Roosevelt beginning the 20th century, Harry Truman at the right time after World War II. So we do get good people into, into politics. However, something happened about the time we did away with the draft uh, something around the Vietnam War era, that we started deprioritizing what it meant to have honor and what it meant to be a public servant. And that we are degrading ourselves ever since. And the challenge, as Richard Haas said last evening at the State Department, kind of he tucked it in at the end, he was mentioning climate core of young people. I think the big challenge is how do we get young people, that, I mean, these are 18, 19-year-olds going to college, how do we get them to believe that serving our country in some capacity is something to really be proud of and strive for? 
because most now want to look for how do I make money, how do I make a living, understandably, um, pay bills, do the et cetera. But we, we need to re-engage the youth of America into our country, and that only comes through studying the history, civics. And, and I mean, if we don't do it young and get them engaged and offer them ways, I, ran, I've, I really think John F. Kennedy nailed it when he came in and asked, you know, in his famous inaugural, not what, what you know, um, your country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? And it goes back to Bill and Joanne, that's, uh, you know, thinking about um, getting, you know, young people to vote, young people engaged. And those poll questions about our country and all, some of those are things, the young people are angry about climate change a lot, and that's global not just the U.S. They're, they have a lot of anxiety that a lot of the planet's being destroyed. Uh, there'd be something wrong with them if they weren't concerned about disappearing rainforest and freakish storms and things like that. But they don't know how do, how do you participate in changing that because it's such a huge engine. It's like moving to a new era, out, uh, a new green revolution, leaving an industrial revolution behind. And uh, and so a climate core might work. We need people to get out there and do things and care. And so the spirit of Kennedy's Peace Corps, the, the spirit of America Corps, but we need it to be bipartisan and find a way to get the country to at least agree we've got to start teaching the fundamentals and get young people reengaged in our country. Joanne? Yeah, so um, the first thing that popped into my head is just the fact that the earliest that I've seen people saying, why aren't we getting the best men, and at that point it would have been men, in office. Where are they? It was 1796. People are like, well, they're all staying home. They're all on a state level. Why don't we have the best people coming? So that's not a new question. But the, the part that I'm interested in talking about is an angle which, on the one hand, attracts a certain kind of person to engage in politics, not necessarily a public-minded person, and a, a, a sort of mode, a, a problem that has existed before, and we're in the middle of a moment right now, and this has to do with technology. Um, in the period that I've written about, the telegraph fundamentally changed politics. It used to be, or at least according to politicians at the time, it used to be that they could go to Congress, they could do what they needed to do, there was wiggle room so that people didn't immediately know what they were saying or doing, and then the telegraph came along, and everyone within, at that point, it would have been 45 minutes, knew what was happening in Congress. And you could see, when you study Congress in this period, you can see members of Congress stunned by that fact. There, there's an incident in um, 1850 in which a senator pulls a gun on another senator. And there's a to-do, there's what someone calls a stampede, and then ultimately everybody sits down, and there's a New Hampshire senator who stands up and says... I hope you all realize here that in 45 minutes, the nation is going to be reading that we're slaughtering each other in the Senate. And you can feel in the Senate the sort of realization that technology has changed the conversation of democracy. That the technology, if you think about democracy as being a conversation between people with power and the people who have given them that power, any technology that changes that conversation changes democracy. So now get us back to the present and social media. We have that same issue, which is a, a form of technology that has scrambled everything. We had a tweeting president, and it sort of continued on in that vein. We have people, many people in Congress, who are playing to the media, 
more than anything else, and the media gives them a nanosecond they're around the world, that complicates democracy by definition, the conversation of democracy. So I don't have an answer to this, but I think it's a part of the moment that we're in is that we haven't reckoned with the ways in which technology fundamentally are eroding aspects of democracy. And we are, it's sort of happening, we're sort of in a wild west of technology as far as social media is concerned. Bill Brands, from the audience, Andrea Cocaine, no, Cochran, Tracy, excuse me, I apologize. How would you go about educating the American public about understanding democracy? I would have them read history books about the emergence of American democracy, how this came into being. What was what de Tocqueville called democracy in the 1830s is not what democracy became in the 1860s and the 1920s and the 1960s and today. I think it would give people an appreciation of what has been accomplished by generations that came before and implicitly then what we can accomplish too. There is among many of my students, among young people, an impatience with the past, a sense that uh, you guys back in the past, they just didn't know how to do it. There's a tendency for every generation to measure people in the past, events in the past, against present-day standards. And the past always comes off looking badly. But to see how it developed over time, I think, would put the present generation in, in a sense that you're part of this ongoing experiment. And that what the challenges that previous generations had to deal with and overcame, sometimes with great cost, um, with great pain, well, they did it. They accomplished this. And whatever challenges we face today, we can surmount those challenges uh, as long as we realize that, okay, we've been handed this wonderful gift, this gift of 250 years of not democracy, but of self-government, and we can carry it forward. What we've been given, we should bequeath to our children and our grandchildren a little bit better than it was handed to us. And if we think in those terms, make it a little bit better. Don't expect that where it's ever going to be perfect. People will always be complaining. One of the, one of the lessons of American history is that people always thought democracy or whatever form of government they had was terrible. And that there were... The, the bad rascals got elected, and will this experiment collapse tomorrow? Will it go on? So we've managed to stagger through 25 decades of this, and there's every reason to hope that we'll continue to stagger through another 25 decades. But we're never going to feel great about it because there's always work to be done. Doug Brightburn has a question. <clears throat> Is voting more important than serving, Edna? And he continues, what are the responsibilities of citizens that are critical to the strengthening of our democracy? Mm-hmm. Well, voting certainly, to me, is number one. Because you can't really help to determine what the country is going to be unless you're getting out there and voting. Service is critical as well. But it doesn't necessarily mean service in the armed forces or servant, uh, service in a governmental capacity. I think teachers serve 
every day they're in the classroom, they're serving because they're teaching the next generation of people who are going to be voting and who are going to be doing those things that will make democracy stronger. So I don't think that you could exclude one, you know, and say, well, service is more important than voting or voting is more important than service. You have to do both. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. Um, <clears throat> this one from Joe Biden. We know how damaged our institutions of democracy, our judiciary, the legislature, the executive, have become in the eyes of the American people, even the world, from attacks within the past few years. We should all remember democracies don't have to die at the end of a rifle. They can die when people are silent, when they fail to stand up or condemn threats to democracy. Joe Biden. Then the next one, if I can find it here, is from Donald Trump. Former President Trump said, this is from the Hill publication, in a new interview that he doesn't believe the United States has much of a democracy right now. Trump said he believes democracy is the most effective form of government, but it has to be a democracy that's fair. I don't consider us to have much of a democracy right now. Well, the... Um you know, the Washington Post is put on its front and you know, democracy dies in darkness. Uh, what is the darkness that they're talking about? It's the fact that we are we are stewing in misinformation that you, we, we can't tell you enough what this does with, with Bill was talking about students. They don't want to read, um, uh, you know, a big history book. They Oh, you want to know about George Washington Valley Forge? Here, I got it right here on Wikipedia. There, we're not, it's not a critical thinking. Today's stories, the humanities are getting slashed at universities. They're not giving faculty tenure. They're cutting it, and everything's going into the STEM world. And so we're denigrating the understanding of what our democracy is. I w agree with the problems of democracy right now, but I think the, you know, the, the threat is within, but it, the answer can only be through enlightenment. And enlightenment means fact-based evidence like we have had before. In 1960, scientists were Time Magazine's collective people of the year. When we had a feud about something then, people would say, here's the scientific community, and they issue a report, and people uh, cohered around it. Now people are buying the scientists. It's, got, it's gotten... And do not underestimate how this is being infiltrated. Russia, China... Iran, rogue actors are getting sights on that kids are looking at, young people are looking at, adults are looking at. The amount of people that believe in conspiracy garbage is staggering. And so, it goes back to technology. It goes back to technology, like Joanne said. And I think well, I'll end with this. Walter Cronkite, I wrote his biography, and before he died, he had one big concern of our country. And, he, you know, it, it stuck with me. And he said, Whatever you do, and he knew he was going soon. He was starting to get a dementia, and he was passing this on to me. Um, he, he said that you've got to teach in middle school or freshman high school how to use this. You just can't bring technology here. Here's the word without directing. What's a hate site? What's a what's a, a racist site? What's an anti-Semitic site? What's a if you don't know, you're just getting what seems to be popping up or what seems hot, and it allows demagogues and uh, bad faith actors. 
to have a predominance in our democracy, uh, a, 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 which they wouldn't if, if we would train people how to make sure things are fact-checked. And this is just a misinformation world out there right now. Tammy Manorino has a question for all four of you. This will be fun to get the answer. Which of our presidents best understood the elements of democracy? Good. Lincoln, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Lincoln's definition of democracy was that the government ensures that everyone has a fair chance in the race of life. And I think that says it all. And the reason why he was so anti-slavery was because people who were enslaved did not have a fair chance. They could not elevate themselves. And so if you get rid of slavery, you strengthen democracy and you strengthen the nation. And so I think he had the best definition of democracy that I've heard. Bill Brandt. That's a tough one because the democracy is a moving target. And I agree with Edna that Lincoln had this understanding of democracy, but of course in Lincoln's day, black people couldn't vote and women couldn't vote, and that would be utterly unacceptable by the middle or the end of the 20th century. So, ah, hmm, I don't know if I have an answer to that, the single best one. Sort of a, a simplistic answer would be the president we've got right now. And I'm not saying just because he's Joe Biden, but because our understanding of what democracy should be has changed over time, and I think it's become more inclusive. So I think it improves in that regard. Um, I think that, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Joanne Wheeler. Joanne. Um, it is a hard question because basically, and particularly given that I'm a pre-Civil War historian, if you're talking about presidents who were around when slavery existed, it's very hard to say that these were people who understood democracy. But I, And I promise you, I'm not pandering to this crowd, but there was one way in which George Washington, as president, fundamentally had to understand something, or certainly did understand something, in a way that mattered. And that is simply the fact that he knew he was first, and that the rest of the world was a monarchy in one way or another. He understood that what he did with power and how he displayed power and basic, basic things like um, how would he walk in the street or would he always ride in a carriage. On a very fundamental level, he worked really hard at trying to appear to be a president and not a king. Now, that's not necessarily explicitly democracy, But again and again and again, he did what he did so well as a leader, which is show that he didn't have absolute power, show that he, in some ways, was not maybe kowtowing, but bowing down to, actually bowing down to the people. Uh, When he first became president, apparently, if you um, have not yet exposed yourself to um, Senator William McClay's diary, Pennsylvania senator in the first Congress, and the Library of Congress has a version of it that's online. William McClay kept a diary of almost his entire time uh, being in the Senate, and he tells this anecdote about how at the very beginning the government first started meeting, George Washington got on his horse and went to every congressional boarding house 
got off the horse, bowed down to members of Congress, cut back on the horse, and rode off to the next one. He was showing his respect for the people. And Port McClay was like, what was that? Like, what, <laughs> what, a, what a strange thing. But I think his awareness that that sort of thing mattered. You know, every day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he would take a walk around Philadelphia. Apparently, he would stop. He would look up at a clock on a steeple. He would set his watch and would walk back home. And he got fan mail for the walks because he was in the street like anybody else. And that is why he did it. So for all that he didn't understand or want to understand or live that was about democracy, he did understand that as a leader, he was not absolute and that his power didn't come from him. And I think that's a pretty fundamental thing to bear in mind if you're thinking about democracy. Um, Joanne is our best historian in the United States for understanding the father, founding fathers, as they used to be called, the founders, because she knows the detail, like you just heard. She knows, and, and it, I just love what she does and knows. And just to add on with Washington, that ability to not run a third term, to step down and say, if we're going to have a democracy, I have to step down and, and, and you know, we're going to and, and not cling to power. But my choice is very clear to me, uh, and it's Franklin D. Roosevelt. And it's Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt because they have the clearest understanding of democracy as, an, uh, as a reality, but, but, but more importantly, as something aspirational. You think about FDR's Four Freedom speech when he's saying freedom from fear everywhere in the world, freedom from hunger everywhere in the world. That's what democracy stands for, not, not beating Germany. Not beating Japan, um, you know, it, where it's for freedom for fear, freedom from want, freedom from hunger, freedom of speech, and that four freedom speech and the thinking of um, Franklin Roosevelt. Nobody, they didn't believe Franklin and Eleanor back then that we were going to cure world hunger. But you fight for that. That's you fight to. You have freedom of speech everywhere. We're not going to be able to to own the world and force freedom of speech, but we promote it and we're a beacon of light about it. And the four freedoms gave our soldiers in World War II, our soldiers of democracy, something to be fighting for, not against. And I find the presidents that express the optimism of our country that make people feel good about our American traditions tend to do well in history, meaning Washington and Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and Kennedy and Reagan, you know, because you got to, you're not going to motivate people uh, by constant how, how messed up things are. You're going to have to, you, you have, your people get to work more, I, uh, you know, by feeling that, you know, b being part of a democratic process is messy, but it's fun and we're going to engage and I can change the world. So it, it, there's a difference between intellectual thinking, legal thinking of what a democracy is and what a democracy can aspirationally be. And I, I go with FDR. From the audience, Sally Levan, <clears throat> what are the most effective things we the portion of the general public that wants to move our democracy from C to level B can do. What can we do about moving democracy, I assume, to a better spot than it is right now? Bill Brands? I would say, despite evidence to the contrary, assume good faith and sincerity 
in people you fundamentally disagree with politically. There is a temptation that I think has become more pronounced over the last 10 or 15 years, probably with the emergence of social media, for many people to treat politics as a way of feeling good about themselves by vilifying the people they disagree with. And that is a recipe for political engagement of a sort, but it's not a recipe for actually solving problems. Because the problems become more attractive than the solutions. Acknowledge that you do not have all the answers. Acknowledge that people that you disagree with have as much right to their opinion as you to yours. And that the essence of democracy is to come up with the best common ground you can find between these opposing positions. So, to the extent you can, take the moralism out of politics and treat it as this thing where we've all got to live in this country, we've all got to live on this planet, so let's make the best deal we can. If you, you should expect to live in a state of at least mild dissatisfaction because you're not going to get everything you want. People, one of the reasons that our politics is stuck in this gridlocked situation, it really isn't an institutional thing. It's the fact that Americans are pretty balanced on both sides of fundamental issues. And there's an obvious reason for this. When there's general agreement, we've solved those problems. Now, those problems were a big issue in times past. Should women vote? Well, in 1900, this was an issue that split the country pretty much down the middle. But nobody's saying we ought to take the vote away from women. So we, we have these contentious problems at any moment in history. But the reason they're contentious is precisely because we can't agree. And in fact, if you have a democracy, then you probably ought to be stuck until you can get past that. But the only way to get past it is to assume that the people you disagree with have as much right to their opinions as you have to yours, and then make the best of that. Adrian. From the audience, Adrian J., what is the issue that will improve our democracy? If we are a work in progress, what's the right balance between our growth versus helping other nations? Doug? Um, I think right now we have to focus on our country. We, we're, we're, we're all over the world, as we should be, doing things. But we do have a crisis here at home. And as Bill was saying, the, you know, we, Joanne wrote a book years ago about a pre-Civil War where people in Capitol Hill were caning each other, right, and beating each other. And, I mean, the point of history is to remind us that our own times aren't uniquely oppressive. Uh, we've gone through a lot in this country, and you've got to let young people know that it's not just now that there's trouble. We've had it in the past, but we persevere. And so I feel that it, it's getting to people to believe in in the United States again. Uh, so many people are afraid to to um, you know talk about their love of country. Uh, they feel that they're embarrassed by America, and 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 part of being a participant. Tory democracy isn't just voting. It's caring all the time and finding things. And Bill's talking about students. I always tell students, are you joining something? Get involved. Join a, a society. Be part of the, what's going on, not just back complaining. Be, and so the carping about how bad things are and woe is meism meets misinformation on your um, 
on the social media world, and it's we, we're in a tangle, and, and we're going to have to figure it out. Anything in the world that changes is through education. I'm proud of what we're doing in STEM. I'm proud of our, of our technological sector, our research and development, computers, everything. But we are woefully throwing away history in a, as a serious pursuit in in and civic engagement. And if we do not reclaim those, you're going to have a lot of people making m- money and people not caring about uh, much about politics except to laugh about what doofus is who's running is. Uh, you know, and I go back to Theodore Roosevelt's in the arena speech. It's easy to sit on the sidelines and mock everybody. Oh, what idiots in Washington. I don't like the State Department. Everybody in Capitol Hill's a fool. Drain the swamp and all of this. And Roosevelt talked about being in the arena and having the dust and the sweat and fighting for your country uh, and caring about your democracy enough that you're going to, you know, become a new leader in democratic principles, democratic thinking. Um, so, you know, I, I have to, we have no choice but to remain hopeful. You start stripping hope away from people and telling them it's all doom and gloom, uh, you know, and then expect people to get motivated. It, it's really hard. May I? Certainly. Yeah. If we are the exceptional nation that we claim to be, I think we can do two things at once. So we can deal with the issues here at home and help people abroad as well. Because if we don't stay engaged with what's happening abroad, we're going to have even greater problems here. Because while we're trying to solve our own problems, there are other bad actors out there that are taking over the rest of the world. They have so much influence. And so we can't let that chance pass that we have to help people abroad. It's going to be tough, but we should be able to do it. We are in the world. Yes. And and it's too late to get out now. Well, and if if, if anything, (laughs) it's true, if anything showed that more dramatically than anything else, it's the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Pandemics don't see national boundaries. (laughs) Right. So, so the world, in a sense, was created in a really obvious way simply by watching that spread around the globe. We are in the world. Bill Brands, Nadine Bradburn. I have a suspicion that she's related to Doug Bradburn. <laughs> How do we elect better officials if the greatest leaders today won't run for office for various reasons? Um, I take issue with the premise of the question that the, and go back to Tocqueville who says that the superior people won't get elected. I think that misunderstands what the demands are on leaders in a democracy. And here, I'll go back to Doug's favorite and one of mine, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who appalled his family and friends when he announced he was going into politics. They said, what are you going into politics? This was in the days of Tammany Hall in New York. Why are you going into politics? He says, because I want to be part of the governing class. And... It's one thing to say the superior people, you know, that's a very French thing for Tocqueville to say, but he was coming from an aristocratic regime. And the people with education, the people with connections. But that's not what democracy is about. The democracy is about the people, the people as they are. And so it, it is a really difficult thing to be, uh, an effective leader in a democracy. Because, yeah, you have to be smart. You have to have experience. You have to have intuition. But you really have to have a common touch. And you have to be able to convey your vision to ordinary people. You have to motivate ordinary people. 
I would say that in some ways, the cure for our problems is that charismatic leader who has appeared in American history time and again, who nobody was expecting. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, very few people had high hopes for Franklin Roosevelt. Walter Lippmann famously said, he's a nice man who wants to be president of the United States. And, um, but it, he proved to have a set of skills, uh, and these are not simply intellectual skills, they're not simply political skills, but these are personal skills. And we will find, I hope, it's happened in the past, we will find somebody, someone will come along who will be able to summon what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. I hope it doesn't take a civil war. It is true that the greatest crises in American history are the ones that have brought out sort of the greatest presidents. Um, I have to weigh in on the charisma factor, though. Please. Um, and, and now I'm speaking as an early American historian. The, the thing that most... That, that the founding generation most feared, getting back to the idea of an experiment, was the demagogue. Right. Because that's where democracy or any form of democratic government is fallible, is that someone who's very charismatic will say what he has to do and act like he has to to get into power, and then once that person has power, will do whatever he or she wants to do with that power. So I, the charisma factor, obviously, in politics is important, but, but speaking as an early Americanist, some part of me, my fist clench, and I think, be careful, <laughs> be careful of charisma because of the, the demagogue. So I would say it's a necessary condition for success. It's not a sufficient condition. Yes. So you can, Donald Trump is an extremely charismatic individual. Um, I think that he's lacking in other aspects of democratic leadership, but charisma can be negative in the sense that it can summon, well, what Lincoln might have called the worst angels he's or the devils. Tool of ambition, basically. Exactly. But, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, to say something like, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And it's patently wrong. It was objectively inaccurate. But nonetheless, it captured a particular moment, and it inspired people. Franklin Roosevelt's policies, his leadership, did not cure the Depression, but it cured, it, cured it. it certainly allayed the despair that people felt during the 1930s. Um, and you know, the country remained in Depression for years afterwards, but Americans, for the first time, began to believe that somebody in Washington, the government in Washington, cared for them. And so it made him this figure that people would respond to in a positive way. So, yes, I agree that the personal attraction of that we call charisma can work in either direction. Very little time left, but I want to ask you about something that has nothing to do per se with democracy. There's a lot of anger in the United States. Doug Brinkley is a professor at Rice. Bill Brands at the University of Texas, Joanne Freeman at Yale, Howard University specialist in history, Edna Medford, and the National Communications Association has done a survey. And there are a lot of people that don't like you for political reasons. The survey determined they'd studied 40 different universities, all tenure-track professors, one Republican to 33.5 Democrats teaching in colleges. In the law schools, it's 1 to 8.6, one Republican to 8.6 Democrats. Here's another statistic. 60% of communication and history professors, I mean schools, that they studied employ no registered Republicans. 
What do you say to that for people that are looking and listening and saying, I don't trust you guys. You're all on one side. Uh, speaking for somebody who lives in Texas, I don't trust that statistic. <laughs> because in Texas, in Texas, there are no registered Republicans. There are no registered Democrats. You just go to the polls and you vote the way you want in primaries. You just show up and you say, oh, this time I want to be a Republican. This time I want to be a Democrat. So I would really be interested to know how they determined the party affiliation of the people in, that they polled. I mean, maybe they asked them and maybe there was self-identification. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical. Edna Medford? You know, I, I don't know why they have that attitude, except that professors do tend to be liberal. Um, at least that's been my experience, and it may be because I was at a university for 35 years where there were a lot of liberal professors. Uh, I think we tend to be more liberal because of what we study, and I think that we're so into critical thinking. Uh, you know, I, I find myself, um, I mean, I have a certain direction that I go in, but I find myself from time to time looking at uh, stations, TV stations, uh, cable news networks that disagree with my point of view. And I do that because if I'm going to critique what someone believes, I need to know what they believe. And I can't know that unless I'm witnessing it, unless I'm seeing what they're saying. And then after seeing that, I make a decision. But I think that's something that historians tend to do. I don't know that the rest of the world does that. I think that people are very much persuaded by what they see as their own personal needs. Uh, Everybody is a victim, you know, (laughs) one way or another. Uh, And so either the government is working on any given day or it's not for a particular group of people. And I think we don't use our critical thinking skills enough. And if we did that, perhaps more people would come to my conclusion. (laughs) Frankly, I just remind you that that great theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, had a line, the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. And if that's going to become, if you go into history as a living, you're not going to make a lot of money. You're going to be a teacher. And, you know, looking at, say, 1920s, when you're looking at Harding and um, Coolidge and Hoover, often the Republican um, world of that poll is about business, about capitalism, about making money. And historians by nature have to really look deep at things Many companies don't allow scholars into their archives. Ford Motor let me into theirs, and I I wrote the history of the whole company, and I was grateful for Ford, and they're sponsoring this today. So I think there's sometimes, like if you're, you got the normal person thing about history just says these things about Lincoln, and it sounds good. The better angels, you know, and oh, here's the Lincoln's greatest hits. You dig deep. I'm on Route 66 in Springfield, Illinois, blocks from where Lincoln's house is in 1908, the city of Springfield, Lincoln's house, burned all black people's house, lynched them. Uh, you want to see a race riot? You don't have to talk about the Tulsa 1920. Look at 1908 Springfield at the block where Lincoln's from. And, and you know, and then it's not, not very well known. The NAACP was born out of that event. But it's our job to talk about that. 
And if, if you do, people are going to say, oh, you're a left. You're talking about, you know, uh, uh, white, white discrimination against people of color. Uh, you know, it's just you get labeled being, um, you know, kind of a liberal. Um, but I don't go asking anybody. I don't ask my neighbors if they're D or R, and I don't really care. I just want to know if your scholarship's accurate, if your footnotes are right. These people all have accurate footnotes, and so read them. Last comment for our panel from Joanne Freeman. I just want to, I'm speaking here for, for teachers and professors. I want to point out a false equivalence that underlies that comment, the, the, the statistic, that, you know, well, so many faculty are liberals. Um, there is an assumption among many that teaching is indoctrinating. Good teaching is teaching students to evaluate and think for themselves. My politics aren't in my classroom. My students have all kinds of politics. I want them to look at evidence, which, of course, we've been talking about social media and, and misinformation and lying. I don't think we should be assuming that the politics of the professors and the teachers necessarily means that children all over the United States are being indoctrinated. I think that's false, and I think that's a dangerous assumption. I think that good teaching is teaching to think and explore and question and ask and disagree and engage in the kinds of conversations we've all been encouraging, that, you know, talking to people who disagree, looking at other TV channels and seeing what people who disagree with you think. That's what good teaching is. And if people, I think, focused on that, they would be less interested in trying to figure out the specific politics of the people who are doing the teaching. Audience, thank you for your great questions. Thank you, Mount Vernon, for this session. And thank you, Doug Brinkley, Bill Brands, Joanne Freeman, and Enda Medford. Thanks for listening to Book Notes Plus. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.